0: Section One of Short Science Fiction Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Lake Placid, Florida. The Blind Man's World by Edward Bellamy, 1898 the narrative to which this note is introductory was found among the papers of the late professor s erasmus larrabee and as an acquaintance of the gentleman to whom they were bequeathed i was requested to prepare it for publication this turned out a very easy task for the document proved of so extraordinary a character that if published at all it should obviously be without change it appears that the professor did really at one time in his life have an attack of vertigo or something of the sort under circumstances similar to those described by him and to that extent his narrative may be found on fact how soon it shifts from that foundation or whether it does at all the reader must conclude for himself it appears certain that the professor never related to anyone while living the stranger features of the experience here narrated. But this might have been merely from fear that his standing as a man of science would be thereby injured. THE PROFESSOR'S NARRATIVE At the time of the experience of which I am about to write, I was professor of astronomy and higher mathematics at Abercrombie College. Most astronomers have a specialty, and mine was the study of the planet Mars, our nearest neighbour but one in the sun's little family when no important celestial phenomena in other quarters demanded attention it was on the ruddy disk of mars that my telescope was oftenest focused. i was never weary of tracing the outlines of its continents and seas its capes and islands its bays and straits its lakes and mountains With intense interest I watched from week to week of the martial winter of the advance of the polar ice cap toward the equator, and its corresponding retreat in the summer, testifying across the gulf of space as plainly as written words to the existence on that orb of a climate like our own. A specialty is always in danger of becoming an infatuation, and my interest in Mars at the time, of which I write, had grown to be more than strictly scientific the impression of the nearness of this planet heightened by the wonderful distinctness of its geography as seen through a powerful telescope appealed strongly to the imagination of the astronomer on fine evenings i used to spend hours not so much critically observing as brooding over its radiant surface till i could almost persuade myself that i saw the breakers dashing on the bold shore of kepler land and heard the muffled thunder of avalanches descending the snow-clad mountains of Mitchell. No earthly landscape had the charm to hold my gaze of that far-off planet, whose oceans, to the unpractised eye, seem but darker and its continents lighter, spots and bands. Astronomers have agreed in declaring that Mars is undoubtedly inhabitable by beings like ourselves, but, as may be supposed, i was not in a mood to be satisfied with considering it merely habitable i allowed no sort of question that it was inhabited what manner of beings these inhabitants might be i found a fascinating speculation the variety of types appearing in mankind even on this small earth makes it most presumptuous to assume that the deacons of different planets may not be characterised by diversities far profounder wherein such diversities coupled with a general resemblance to man might consist whether in mere physical differences or in different mental laws the lack of certain of the great passional motors of men or the possessions of quite others were weird themes of never-failing attractions for my mind the eldorado visions with which the virgin mystery of the new world inspired the early spanish explorers were tame and prosaic compared with the speculations which it was perfectly legitimate to indulge when the problem was the conditions of life on another planet it was the time of the year when mars is most favourably situated for observation and anxious not to lose an hour of the precious season I had spent the greater part of several successive nights in the observatory. I believed that I had made some original observation as to the trend of the coast of Kepler land between Lagrange Grange Peninsula and Christie Bay, and it was to this spot that my observations were particularly directed. On the fourth night other work detained me from the observing chair till after midnight. When I had adjusted the instrument and took my first look at Mars, i remember being unable to restrain a cry of admiration the planet was fairly dazzling it seemed nearer and larger than i had ever seen it before and its peculiar ruddiness more striking in thirty years of observations i recall in fact no occasion when the absence of exhalations in our atmosphere has coincided with such cloudlessness in that of mars as on that night i could plainly make out the white masses of vapour at the opposite edges of the lighted disc which are the mists of its dawn and evening the snowy mass of mount hall over against kepler land stood out with wonderful clearness and i could unmistakably detect the blue tint of the ocean of delarue which washes its base a feat of vision often indeed accomplished by stargazers though i had never done it to my complete satisfaction before i was impressed with the idea that if i ever made an original discovery in regard to mars it would be on that evening and i believed that i should do it i trembled with mingled exultation and anxiety and was obliged to pause to recover my self-control finally i placed my eye to the eyepiece and directed my gaze upon the portion of the planet in which i was especially interested my attention soon became fixed and absorbed much beyond my wont when observing and that in itself applied no ordinary degree of abstraction to all mental intents and purposes i was on mars every faculty every susceptibility of sense and intellect seemed gradually to pass into the eye and become concentrated in the act of gazing every atom of nerve and will-power combined in the strain to see a little and yet a little and yet a little clearer far deeper the next thing i knew i was on the bed that stood in a corner of the observing-room half raised on an elbow and gazing intently at the door it was broad daylight Half a dozen men, including several of the professors and a doctor from the village, were around me. Some were trying to make me lie down, others were asking me what I wanted, while the doctor was urging me to drink some whiskey. Mechanically repelling their offices, I pointed to the door and ejaculated, President Bixby, coming, giving the impression to the one idea which my dazed mind at that moment contained and sure enough even as i spoke the door opened and the venerable head of the college somewhat blown with climbing the steep stairway stood on the threshold with a sensation of prodigious relief i fell back on my pillow it appeared that i had swooned while in the observing chair the night before and had been found by the janitor in the morning my head fallen forward on the telescope as if still observing but my body cold rigid pulseless and apparently dead in a couple of days i was all right again and should soon have forgotten the episode but for a very interesting conjecture which had suggested itself in connection with it this was nothing less than that while i lay in that swoon i was in a conscious state outside and independent of the body and in that state received impressions and exercised perceptive powers for this extraordinary theory i had no other evidence than the fact of my knowledge in the moment of awakening that president bixby was coming up the stairs but slight as this clue was it seemed to me unmistakable in its significance that knowledge was certainly in my mind on the instant of arousing from the swoon it certainly could have not been there before i fell into the swoon i must therefore have gained it in the meantime that is to say i must have been in a conscious percipient state while my body was insensible if such had been the case i reasoned that it was altogether unlikely that the trivial impression was to president bixby had been the only one which i had received in that state it was far more probable that it had remained over in my mind on waking from the swoon merely because it was the latest of a series of impressions received while outside the body these impressions were of a kind most strange and startling seeing that they were those of a disembodied soul exercising faculties more spiritual than those of the body i could not doubt the desire to know what they had been grew upon me till it became a longing which left me no repose it seemed intolerable that i should have secrets from myself that my soul should withhold its experiences from my intellect i would gladly have consented that the acquisitions of half my waking lifetime should be blotted out if so be in exchange i might be shown the record of what i had seen and known during those hours of which my waking memory showed no trace none the less for the conviction of its hopelessness but rather all the more as the perversity of our human nature will have it the longing for this forbidden lore grew on me till the hunger of eve in the garden was mine constantly brooding over desire that i felt to be vain tantalized by the possession of a clue which only mocked me my physical condition became at length affected my health was disturbed and my rest at night was broken a habit of walking in my sleep from which i had not suffered since childhood recurred and caused me frequent inconvenience such had been in general my condition for some time when i awoke one morning with the strangely weary sensation by which my body usually betrayed the secret of the impositions put upon it in sleep of which otherwise i should often have suspected nothing and going into the study connected with my chamber i found a number of freshly written sheets on the desk astonished that any one should have been in my rooms while i slept i was astounded on looking more closely to observe that the handwriting was my own how much more than astounded i was on reading the matter that had been set down the reader may judge if he shall peruse it for these written sheets apparently contained the longed-for but despaired-of record of those hours when i was absent from my body they were the lost chapter of my life or rather not lost at all for it had been no part of my waking life but a stolen chapter stolen from that sleep memory on whose mysterious tablets may well be inscribed tales as much more marvellous than this as this is stranger than most stories it will be remembered that my last recollection before waking in my bed on the morning after the swoon was of contemplating the coast of Keplerland with an unusual concentration of attention as well as i can judge and that is no better than any one else it is the moment that my bodily powers succumbed and i became unconscious that the narrative which i found on my desk begins even had I not come as straight and swift as the beam of light that made my path, a glance about would have told me to what part of the universe I had fared. No earthly landscape could have been more familiar. I stood on the high coast of Kepler land where it trends southward. A brisk westerly wind was blowing and the waves of the ocean of Dilabu were thundering at my feet, while the broad blue waters of Christie Bay stretched away to the southwest against the northern horizon, rising out of the ocean like a summer thunderhead, for which I at first mistook it, towered the far distant, snowy summit of Mount Hall. Even had the configuration of land and sea been less familiar, I should none the less have known that I stood on the planet whose ruddy hue is at once the admiration and puzzle of astronomers. Its explanation I now recognized in the tint of the atmosphere a colour incomparable to the haze of indian summer except that its hue was a faint rose instead of purple like the indian summer haze it was impalpable and without impeding the view bathed all objects near and far in a glamour not to be described as the gaze turned upward however the deep blue of space so far overcame the roseate tint that one might fancy he were still on earth as i looked about me i saw many men women and children they were in no respect dissimilar so far as i could see to the men women and the children of the earth save for something almost childlike in the untroubled serenity of their faces unfurled as they were by any trace of care of fear or of anxiety this extraordinary youthfulness of aspect made it difficult indeed save by careful scrutiny to distinguish the young from the middle-aged maturity from advanced years time seemed to have no tooth on mars i was gazing about me admiring this crimson-lighted world and these people who appeared to hold happiness by a tenure so much firmer than men's when i heard the words you are welcome and turning saw that i had been accosted by a man with the stature and bearing of middle age though his countenance, like the other faces which I had noted, wonderfully combined the strength of a man's with the serenity of a child's. I thanked him, and said, You do not seem surprised to see me, though I certainly am to find myself here. Assuredly not, he answered. I knew, of course, that I was to meet you to-day. And not only that, but I may say I'm already in a sense acquainted with you, through a mutual friend professor edgerly he was here last month and i met him at that time we talked of you and your interest in our planet i told him i expected you edgerly i exclaimed it is strange that he has said nothing of this to me i met him every day but i was reminded that it was in a dream that edgerly like myself had visited mars and on awakening had recalled nothing of his experience just as i should recall nothing of mine when will man learn to interrogate the dream-soul of the marvels it sees in its wanderings then he will no longer need to improve his telescopes to find out the secrets of the universe do your people visit the earth in the same manner i asked my companion certainly he replied but there we find no one able to recognize us and converse with us as i am conversing with you although myself in the waking state you as yet lack the knowledge we possess of the spiritual side of the human nature which we share with you that knowledge must have enabled you to learn much more of the earth than we know of you i said indeed it has he replied from visitors such as you of whom we entertain a concourse constantly we have acquired familiarity with your civilization your history your manners and even your literature and languages have you not noticed that i am talking with you in english which is certainly not a tongue indigenous to this planet among so many wonders i scarcely observed that i answered for ages pursued my companion we have been waiting for you to improve your telescopes so as to approximate the power of ours after which communication between the planets would be easily established the progress which you make is however so slow that we expect to wait ages yet indeed i fear you will have to i replied our opticians already talk of having reached the limits of their art i do not imagine that i spoke in any spirit of petulance my companion resumed the slowness of your progress is not so remarkable to us as that you make any at all burdened as you are by a disability so crushing that if we were in your place i fear we should sit down in utter despair to what disability do you refer i asked you seem to be men like us and so we are was the reply save in one particular but there the difference is tremendous in doubt otherwise like us you are destitute of the faculty of foresight WITHOUT WHICH WE SHOULD THINK OUR OTHER FACULTIES WELL nigh VALUELESS. FORESIGHT, I REPEATED, CERTAINLY YOU CANNOT MEAN THAT IT IS GIVEN TO YOU TO KNOW THE FUTURE. IT IS GIVEN NOT ONLY TO US, WAS THE ANSWER, BUT SO FAR AS WE KNOW, TO ALL OTHER INTELLIGENT BEINGS OF THE UNIVERSE EXCEPT YOURSELVES. OUR POSITIVE KNOWLEDGE EXTENDS ONLY TO OUR SYSTEM OF MOONS AND PLANETS, AND SOME OF THE NEARER FOREIGN SYSTEMS and it is conceivable that the remoter parts of the universe may harbor other blind races like your own. But it certainly seems unlikely that so strange and lamentable a spectacle should be duplicated. One such illustration of the extraordinary deprivations under which a rational existence may still be possible ought to suffice for the universe. But no one can know the future except by inspiration of God, I said all our faculties are by inspiration of god was the reply but there is surely nothing in foresight to cause it to be so regarded more than any other think a moment of the physical analogy of the case your eyes are placed in the front of your heads you would deem it an odd mistake if they were placed behind that would appear to you an arrangement calculated to defeat their purpose Does it not seem equally rational that the mental vision should range forward, as it does with us, illuminating the path one is to take, rather than backward, as with you, revealing only the course you have already trodden, and therefore have no more concern with? But it is no doubt a merciful provision of providence that renders you unable to realize the grotesqueness of your predicament, as it appears to us but the future is eternal i exclaimed how can a finite mind grasp it our foreknowledge implies only human faculties was the reply it is limited to our individual careers on this planet each of us foresees the course in his own life but not that of other lives except so far as they are involved with his that such a power as you describe could be combined with merely human faculties is more than our philosophers have ever dared to dream i said and yet who shall say after all that it is not in mercy that god has denied it to us if it is a happiness as it must be to foresee one's happiness it must be most depressing to foresee one's sorrows failures yes and even one's death "'for if you foresee your lives to the end, "'you must anticipate the hour and manner of your death. "'Is it not so?' "'Most assuredly,' was the reply. "'Living would be a very precarious business, "'were we uninformed of its limit. "'Your ignorance of the time of your death "'impresses us as one of the saddest features of your condition.' "'And by us,' I answered, "'it is held to be one of the most merciful.' foreknowledge of your death would not indeed prevent your dying once continued my companion but it would deliver you from the thousand deaths you suffer through uncertainty whether you can safely count on the passing day it is not the death you die but these many deaths you do not die which shadow your existence poor blindfolded creatures that you are cringing at every step in apprehension of the stroke that perhaps is not to fail till old age Never raising a cup to your lips with the knowledge that you will live to quaff it, never sure that you will meet again the friend you part with for an hour, from those whose hearts no happiness suffices to banish the chill of an ever present dread, what idea can you form of the godlike security with which we enjoy our lives and the lives of those we love? You have a saying on earth, Tomorrow belongs to God. But here, Tomorrow belongs to us, even as today to you for some inscrutable purpose he sees fit to dole out life moment by moment with no assurance that each is not to be the last to us he gives a lifetime at once fifty sixty seventy years a divine gift indeed a life such as yours would i fear seem of little value to us for such a life however long is but a moment long since that is all you can count on and yet i answered though knowledge of the duration of your lives may give you an enviable feeling of confidence while the end is far off is that not more than offset by the daily growing weight with which the expectation of the end as it draws near must press upon your minds on the contrary was the response death never an object of fear as it draws near becomes more and more a matter of indifference to the moribund it is because you live in the past that death is grievous to you. All your knowledge, all your affections, all your interests are rooted in the past, and on that account, as life lengthens, it strengthens its hold on you, and memory becomes a more precious possession. We, on the contrary, despise the past and never dwell upon it. Memory with us, far from being the morbid and monstrous growth it is with you, is scarcely more than a rudimentary faculty we live wholly in the future and the present what with foretaste and actual taste our experiences whether pleasant or painful are exhausted of interest by the time they are past the accumulated treasures of memory which you relinquish so painfully in death we count no loss at all our minds being fed wholly from the future we think and feel only as we anticipate and so as the dying man's future contracts there is less and less about which he can occupy his thoughts his interest in life diminishes as the ideas which it suggests grow fewer till at last death finds him with his mind a tabula rasa as with you at birth in a word his concern with life is reduced to a vanishing point before he is called on to give it up in dying, he leaves nothing behind. And the after death, I asked, is there no fear, fear of that? Surely, was the reply. It is not necessarily for me to say that a fear which affects only the more ignorant on earth is not known at all to us, and would be counted blasphemous. Moreover, as I have said, our foresight is limited to our lives on this planet. Any speculation beyond them would be purely conjectural and our minds are repelled by the slightest taint of uncertainty to us the conjectural and the unthinkable may be called almost the same but even if you do not fear death for itself i said you have hearts to break is there no pain when the ties of love are sundered love and death are not foes on our planet was the reply there are no tears by the bedsides of our dying the same beneficent law which makes it so easy for us to give up life forbids us to mourn the friends we leave or them to mourn us with you it is the intercourse you have had with friends that is the source of your tenderness for them with us it is the anticipation of the intercourse we shall enjoy which is the foundation of fondness as our friends vanish from our future with the approach of their death the effect on our thoughts and affections is as it would be with you if you forgot them by lapse of time as our dying friends grow more and more indifferent to us we by operation of the same law of our nature become indifferent to them till at last we are scarcely more than kindly and sympathetic watchers about the beds of those who regard us equally without keen emotions so at last god gently unwinds instead of breaking the bands that bind our hearts together and makes death as painless to the surviving as to the dying relations meant to produce our happiness are not the means also of torturing us as with you love means joy and that alone to us instead of blessing our lives for a while only to desolate them later on compelling us to pay with a distinct and separate pang for every thrill of tenderness exacting a tear for every smile there are other partings than those of death are these two without sorrow for you i asked assuredly was the reply can you not see that so it must needs be with beings freed by foresight from the disease of memory all the sorrow of parting as of dying comes with you from the backward vision which precludes you from beholding your happiness till it is past suppose your life destined to be blessed by a happy friendship if you could know it beforehand it would be a joyous expectation brightening the intervening years and cheering you as you traverse desolate periods but no not till you meet the one who is to be your friend do you know of him nor do you guess even then what he is to be to you that you may embrace him at first sight your meeting is cold and indifferent it is long before fire is fairly kindled between you and then it is already time for parting now indeed the fire burns well but henceforth it must consume your heart not till they are dead or gone do you fully realize how dear your friends were and how sweet was their companionship but we we see our friends afar coming to meet us smiling already in our eyes years before our ways meet we greet them at first meeting not coldly not uncertainly but with exultant kisses in an ecstasy of joy they enter at once into the full possession of hearts long warmed and lighted for them we meet with that delirium of tenderness with which you part and when to us at last the time of parting comes it only means that we are to contribute to each other's happiness no longer we are not doomed like you in parting to take away with us the delight we brought our friends leaving the ache of bereavement in its place so that their last state is worse than their first parting here is like meeting with you calm and unpassioned the joys of anticipation and possession are the only food of love with us and therefore love always wears a smiling face with you he feeds on dead joys past happiness which are likewise the sustenance of sorrow no wonder love and sorrow are so much alike on earth it is a common saying among us that were it not for the spectacle of the earth the rest of the worlds would be unable to appreciate the goodness of god to them and who can say that this is not the reason the piteous sight is set before us you have told me marvellous things i said after i had reflected it is indeed but reasonable that such a race as yours should look down with wondering pity on the earth and yet before i grant so much i want to ask you one question there is known in our world a certain sweet madness under the influence of which we forget all that is unwonted in our lot and would not change it for a god's so far is this sweet madness regarded by men as a compensation and more than a compensation for all their miseries that if you know not love as we know it if this loss be the price you have paid for your divine foresight we think ourselves more favoured of god than you confess that love with its reserves its surprises its mysteries its revelations is necessarily incompatible with a foresight which weighs and measures every experience in advance of love surprises we certainly know nothing was the reply it is believed by our philosophers that the slightest surprise would kill beings of our constitution like lightning though of course this is merely theory for it is only by the study of earthly conditions that we are able to form an idea of what surprise is like your power to endure the constant buffetings of the unexpected is a matter of supreme amazement to us nor according to our ideas is there any difference between what you call pleasant and painful surprises you see then that we cannot envy you these surprises of love which you find so sweet for to us they would be fatal for the rest there is no form of happiness which foresight is so well calculated to enhance as that of love let me explain to you how this befalls as the growing boy begins to be sensible of the charms of woman he finds himself as i dare say it is with you preferring some type of face and form to others he dreams oftenest of fair hair or maybe of dark of blue eyes or brown as the years go on his fancy brooding over what seems to it the best and loveliest of every type is constantly adding to this dream face this shadowy form traits and lineaments hues and contours till at last the picture is complete and he becomes aware that on his heart thus subtly has been depicted the likeness of the maiden destined for his arms it may be years before he is to see her but now begins with him one of the sweetest offices of love one to you unknown youth on earth is a stormy period of passion chafing in restraint or rioting in excess but the very passion whose awakening makes this time so critical with you is here a reforming and educating influence to whose gentle and potent sway we gladly confide our children the temptations which lead our young men astray have no hold on a youth of our happy planet he hoards the treasures of his heart for its coming mistress of her alone he thinks and to her all his vows are made the thought of license would be Tresop to his sovereign lady whose right to all the revenues of his being he joyfully owns to rob her to abate her her high prerogatives would be to impoverish to insult himself for she is to be his and her honour her glory are his own through all this time that he dreams of her by night and day the exquisite reward of his devotion is the knowledge that she is aware of him as he of her and that in the inmost shrine of a maiden heart his image is set up to receive the incense of a tenderness that needs not to restrain itself through fear of possible cross or separation in due time their converging lives come together the lovers meet gaze a moment into each other's eyes then throw themselves each on the other's breast the maiden has all the charms that ever stirred the blood of an earthly lover But there is another glamour over her which the eyes of earthly lovers are shut to the glamour of the future. In the blushing girl, her lover sees the fond and faithful wife, in the blithe maiden, the patient, pain consecrated mother. On the virgin's breast, he beholds his children. He is prescient, even as his lips take the first fruits of hers, of the future years during which she is to be his companion, his ever present solace his chief portion of god's goodness we have read some of your romances describing love as you know it on earth and i must confess my friend we find them very dull i hope he added as i did not speak at once that i shall not offend you by saying we find them also objectionable your literature possesses in general an interest for us in the picture it presents of the curiosity inverted life which the lack of foresight compels you to lead it is a study especially prized for the development of the imagination on account of the difficulty of conceiving conditions so opposed to those of intelligent beings in general but our women do not read your romances the notion that a man or woman should ever conceive the idea of marrying a person other than the one whose husband or wife he or she is destined to be is profoundly shocking to our habits of thought no doubt you will say that such instances are rare among you but if your novels are faithful pictures of your life they are at least not unknown that these situations are inevitable under the conditions of earthly life we are well aware and judge you accordingly but it is needless that the minds of our maiden should be pained by the knowledge that there anywhere exists a world where such travesties upon the sacredness of marriage are possible it is however another reason why we discourage the use of your books by our young people and that is the profound effect of sadness to a race accustomed to view all things in the morning glow of the future of a literature written in the past tense and relating exclusively to things that are ended and how do you write of things that are past except in the past tense i asked we write of the past when it is still the future And of course, in the future tense, was the reply. If our historians were to wait till after the events to describe them, not alone would nobody care to read about things already done, but the histories themselves would probably be inaccurate, for memory, as I have said, is a very slightly developed faculty with us, and quite too indistinct to be trustworthy. Should the earth ever establish communications with us, you will find our histories of interest for our planet being smaller cooled and was peopled ages before yours and our astronomical records contain minute accounts of the earth from the time it was a fluid mass your geologists and biologists may yet find a mine of information here in the course of our further conversation it came out that as a consequence of foresight some of the commonest emotions of human nature are unknown on mars they for whom the future has no mystery can of course know neither hope nor fear moreover every one being assured that he shall attain to and what not there can be no such thing as rivalship or emulation or any sort of competition in any respect and therefore all the brood of heart burnings and hatreds engendered on earth by the strife of man with man is unknown to the people of mars save from the study of our planet when i asked if there were not after all a lack of spontaneity of sense of freedom in leading lives fixed in all details beforehand i was reminded that there was no difference in that respect between the lives of the people of earth and of mars both alike being according to god's will in every particular we knew that will only after the event they before that was all for the rest god moved them through their wills as he did us so that they had no more dents of compulsion in what they did than we on earth have in carrying out an anticipated line of action in cases where our anticipations chanced to be correct of the absorbing interest which the study of the plan of their future lives possessed for the people of mars my companion spoke eloquently it was he said like the fascination to a mathematician of a most elaborate and exquisite demonstration, a perfect algebraical equation, with the glowing realities of life in place of figures and symbols. When I asked if it never occurred to them to wish their futures different, he replied that such a question could only have been asked by one from earth. No one could have foresight, or clearly believe that God had it, without realising that the future is as incapable of being changed as the past and not only this but to foresee events was to foresee their logical necessity so clearly that to desire them different was as impossible as seriously to wish that two and two make five instead of four no person could ever thoughtfully wish anything different for so closely are all things the small with the great woven together by god that to draw out the smallest thread would unravel creation through all eternity while we had talked the afternoon had waned and the sun had sunk below the horizon the roseate atmosphere of the planet imparting a splendour to the cloud colouring and a glory to the land and seascape never paralleled by an earthly sunset already the familiar constellations appearing in the sky reminded me how near after all i was to the earth for with the unassisted eye i could not detect the slightest variation in their position nevertheless there was one wholly novel feature in the heavens for many of the host of asteroids which circle in the zone between mars and jupiter were vividly visible to the naked eye but the spectacle that chiefly held my gaze was the earth swimming low on the verge of the horizon its disc twice as large as that of any star or planet as seen from the earth flashed with a brilliancy like that of venus it is indeed a lovely sight said my companion although to me always a melancholy one from the contrast suggested between the radiance of the orb and the benighted condition of its inhabitants we call it the blind man's world as he spoke he turned toward a curious structure which stood near us though i had not before particularly observed it what is that i asked it is one of our telescopes he replied i am going to let you take a look if you choose at your home and test for yourself the powers of which i have boasted and having adjusted the instrument to his satisfaction he showed me where to apply my eye to what answered to the eyepiece i could not repress an exclamation of amazement for truly he had exaggerated nothing the little college town which was my home lay spread out before me seemingly almost as near as when i looked down upon it from my observatory windows it was early morning and the village was waking up THE MILKMEN WERE GOING THEIR ROUNDS, AND WORKMEN, WITH THEIR DINNER pails WERE HURRYING ALONG THE STREETS. THE EARLY TRAIN WAS JUST LEAVING THE RAILROAD STATION. I COULD SEE THE PUFFS FROM THE SMOKESTACK, AND THE JETS FROM THE CYLINDERS. IT WAS STRANGE NOT TO HEAR THE HISSING OF THE STEAM, SO NEAR I SEEMED. THERE WERE THE COLLEGE BUILDINGS ON THE HILL, THE LONG ROWS OF WINDOWS FLASHING BACK THE LEVEL SUNBEAMS i could tell the time by the college clock it struck me that there was an unusual bustle around the buildings considering the earliness of the hour a crowd of men stood about the door of the observatory and many others were hurrying across the campus in that direction among them i recognized president bixby accompanied by a college janitor as i gazed they reached the observatory and passing through the group about the door entered the building the president was evidently going up to my quarters at this it flashed over me quite suddenly that all this bustle was on my account i recalled how it was that i came to be on mars and in what condition i had left affairs in the observatory it was high time i were back there to look after myself here abruptly ended the extraordinary document which i found that morning on my desk that is the authentic record of the conditions of life in another world which it purports to be i do not expect the reader to believe he will no doubt explain it as another of the curious freaks of somnambulism set down in the books probably it was merely that possibly it was something more i do not pretend to decide the question i have told all the facts of the case and i have no better means of forming an opinion than the reader nor do i know even if i fully believed it the true account it seems to be that it would have affected my imagination much more strongly than it has that story of another world has in a word put me out of joint with ours the readiness with which my mind has adapted itself to the martial point of view concerning the earth has been a singular experience the lack of foresight among the human faculties a lack i had scarcely thought of before now impresses me ever more deeply as a fact out of harmony with the rest of our nature belying its promise a moral mutilation a deprivation arbitrary and unaccountable the spectacle of a race doomed to walk backward beholding only what has gone by assured only of what is past and dead comes over me from time to time with a sadly fantastical effect which i cannot describe i dream of a world where love always wears a smile where the partings are as tearless as our meetings and death is king no more i have a fancy which i like to cherish that the people of that happy sphere, fancied though it may be, represent the ideal and normal type of our race, as perhaps it once was, as perhaps it may yet be again. End of section one.